the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And yes, we've made it to Wednesday. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to talk with author John Ellis. His book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damages It Does, and what can be done? The book is published by Encounter. He'll join us later this hour. And in the uh, five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Andy Mangione. He's vice president of the, uh, let's see, the Association of Mature Americans Action. Uh, that's AMAC. It's sort of an alternative to the AARP. We're going to talk about a couple of new measures that would speed up the COVID-19 care and protect a medical supply chain. Uh, Andy Mangione will join us in the second hour of today's program. First, some of the news that's been unfolding throughout the day. The Senate today passed the House coronavirus uh, legislation to provide sick sick leave. (laughs) I've never in my life brought my phone into the studio. And of course, the phone is ringing. Let me just take care of that and turn the volume down. (laughs) I wish you could see the expression on Clark's face. I, I feel quite ridiculous. I never, ever bring my phone into the studio. I was rushed and I grabbed it because I needed to Anyway, the Senate on Wednesday passed the House coronavirus legislation to provide sick leave, unemployment health and free testing to Americans, sending the second COVID-19 relief bill to the desk of the president. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had criticized the legislation negotiated by the Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin as saying real shortcomings, but urged his members to gag and vote for it anyway to show bipartisan cooperation during the global pandemic. Now, when this is all in the rearview mirror, we may regret what's just been done, but for the present, it seemed like the thing to do. This is a time for urgent bipartisan action, he said, and in this case, I do not believe we should let perfection be the enemy of something that will help even a subset of workers. Uh, Wednesday morning, in an announcement, uh, he voted for the House legislation. Uh, McConnell made the statement. Next up, the Senate and White House have been uh, moving quickly to draft a third round of stimulus legislation that could infuse some $1 trillion into the U.S. economy that's been rattled by school closures, business shutdowns, steep declines in travel and tourism, as many Americans are staying home. Now, the uh, uh, Mitch McConnell signaled today that Senate Republicans were close to an agreement on the next round of legislation that would help businesses, American workers, healthcare professionals, and others hard hit by the public health emergency. We're working along and hoping to be together shortly, McConnell told reporters when asked whether Republicans were close on legislation. Well, the House and Senate already passed a bipartisan $8.3 billion package to prop up the health care system to, pre- to prepare for the influx of six Ameri- sick Americans. The second round, um, that response has been targeted at bringing relief to workers who lost their jobs and families at home for illness, um, quarantines, caring for kids whose schools have been shuttered. And the president backed the plan that passed the House early Saturday mar- morning with broad bipartisan support in a 362 
40 vote. The legislation moved so hastily by passing the normal review process that the House had to make corrections to the bill language on Monday. Earlier today, the Senate defeated amendments to the House legislation that were offered by Senator Rand Paul, Ron Johnson, and a third senator, Patty Murray, and Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, I should say a third amendment. Now, all eyes have been on the third round of stimulus that's expected to top $1 trillion, which would infuse Americans' bank accounts with two rounds of direct cash payments. The administration has been seeking $250 billion in payments to Americans starting the 6th of April, followed by another $250 billion cash payment round uh, beginning the 18th of May, according to the working draft of the plan. Uh, that was obtained by some media. The two payments to taxpayers would be identical. The amounts would vary by family income and size, according to the Treasury Department, uh, on the Stage 3 coronavirus proposal. So we'll keep our eyes and ears poised to to, uh, determine what happens next. Meanwhile, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed below 20,000 on Wednesday, at one point wiping out all of the gains from the Trump era before recovery Uh, recovering slightly. The blue chip index fell more than 1,300 points or 6%, while the benchmark S&P 500 slipped 5% and the tech-heavy NASDAQ composite just under that level. Some of the uh, selling abated during the final minutes of trading as lawmakers worked to pass that stimulus package. Taking a look at some of the uh, the headlines, the Department of Homeland Security is considering a plan that would turn away asylum seekers and anyone who has crossed the U.S.-Mexico border illegally in light of the novel coronavirus outbreak. The DHS staff are still developing the plan before it's presented to the president for a final decision. The president has, has the authority to do whatever is necessary to protect the American public from the potentially deadly disease, the DHS said. President Trump is 100 percent committed to protecting the American people from the coronavirus and all options. Options are on the table. Now, earlier, the president closed the um, northern border with Canada. Well, this news comes after the European Union on Tuesday chose to close the bloc's um, borders to most foreigners. In addition, the U.S. reached two grim milestones on Tuesday. Washington state reported the 1,000th case of the coronavirus, and West Virginia recorded its first, making it the 50th state to have a confirmed case of the disease. Vice President Mike Pence, Pence rather, in an interview Tuesday on Hannity, once again encouraged Americans and businesses to follow the coronavirus guidelines released by the president's uh, coronavirus task force. We need every American, every American business to step forward and recognize that if we act now, if we act now, we can limit the spread of the coronavirus significantly and ultimately save lives, he told Hannity. Uh, pushing social distancing. When Hannity asked the vice president about drive-through testing, the vice president said the process was ramping up. What's happening is that as of last week, 10 states around the country have initiated drive-through testing centers. But, Sean, they are using the old manual testing method in labs, which could only test about 40 to 60 people a week. Because the president's two week because the president two weeks ago brought together the top commercial labs in the country, and because the FDA moved in record time, now we have what's called a high thir- um, throughput test, high throughput test, um, automated tests that can literally test the uh, thousands of people a day for the coronavirus. Well, Joe Biden swept another round of delegate rich contests on Tuesday, winning in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. Early- cementing the former vice president as the dominant frontrunner in the race for the, the Democratic presidential nomination over Bernie Sanders as the coronavirus threat scrambles the primary calendar for the foreseeable future. Florida and Illinois will award a hefty 219 and 155 pledged delegates, respectively, while Arizona is worth 67 delegates. 
Together, the contests are likely to only add to the pressure on Sanders to reconsider his presence in the race. Last week, he vowed to press on after a string of defeats, signaling he wants to continue to pressure Biden to embrace more progressive policies. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says the Senate will pass his coronavirus bill without changes. And President Trump wants checks sent to Americans within the next two weeks. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, he warns that the virus could yield 20 percent jobless rate without action. And the Treasury and IRS departments are delaying tax payments, uh, the deadline, by 90 days, but not for everyone. Joe Biden crushed Bernie Sanders in the primary sweep in Florida, Illinois and Arizona, and the president officially secured the Republican nomination. The U.S. is uh, sending back all asylum seekers at the southern border, or at least that's being considered. And a border chief won't handle it uh, uh, over criminal illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities. Los Angeles is releasing more than 600 inmates slashing arrests to combat the coronavirus. And Philadelphia police have stopped some arrests to manage jail crowding during the coronavirus pandemic. On this day in history, 1766, Britain repeals the Stamp Act of 1765. And in 1924, the tri-state tornado strikes southeastern um, Missouri, south, uh, southern Illinois and southwestern Indiana, resulting in some 700 deaths. We're going to take a break, but we will continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll talk with John Ellis, the breakdown of higher education, how it happened, the damage it does, and what can be done. He'll join us in our next segment. Again, looking at uh, some of the... Um, Days, some of the events on this day in history, 1940, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, they meet at the Brenner Pass, where the Italian dictator agrees to join Germany's war against France and Britain. And on this day in history, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs an executive order authorizing the War Relocation Authority, which is put in charge of interning Japanese Americans with Milton S. Eisenhower, the younger brother of Dwight D. Eisenhower, as its director. 1959, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signs the Hawaii Statehood Bill. Hawaii would become a state that August. 1963, on this very day, the U.S. Supreme Court in Gideon v. Wainwright rules unanimously that state courts are required to provide legal counsel to criminal defendants who cannot afford to hire an attorney on their own. 1965, on this day in history, the first spacewalk takes place as Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov goes outside his Voskhod uh, two capsules secured by a tether. And finally, on this day in history, 2005, doctors in Florida, acting on orders of a state judge, removed Terry Schiavo's feeding tube. Despite the efforts of congressional Republicans to intervene and repeated court appeals by Schiavo's parents, the brain-damaged woman would die on March the 31st at age 41. Well, experts are frustrated as uh, many don't take the warnings of the COVID-19 um, safety precautions seriously, such as the uh, many beachgoers this week that have, uh, whose images have been seen all over national media. The sight of them all uh, had Jake Tapper on the edge. Uh, from another story, why would I get sick at the beach? I'm not going to be touching anything, said 146-year-old David Zimmer of Richmond, Minnesota, as he joined a group of family and friends flip-flopping their way to a beach that police had driven through just an hour before to empty it out. From another story, if the Imperial College's model of the disease is right, though, and that's a big if, 
then suppression doesn't hold the disease at bay once it's lifted. We need an indefinite lockdown, a.k.a. economic suicide, until an effective treatment is available, which would be more than a year away. Social death by contagion or social death by economic depression. It seems like the task of policymakers right now is finding the optimal balance between those two that will result in the least possible amount of human misery, knowing that the misery will be incredibly vast no matter what they do. And the National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins writes was or rather was asked what has surprised him most about the coronavirus. And he uh, responds the degree to which this is so rapidly transmissible. More than uh, than SARS was. SARS was a terribly scary situation for the world 18 years ago, but it never reached the level of infections or deaths that we have um, have for the coronavirus because it wasn't as trans uh, transmissible. SARS was transmissible, but only from people who were really very sick. This one seems to be transmissible from people who have minor illness or maybe no illness at all, which is why it has been so difficult to get control of or to know when you should be imposing these stringent measures we've been talking about. If you wait until you've seen lots of infected um, cases, you'll know you've waited too late because the number of people who've uh, yet turned up in the healthcare system but who are already infected is probably 100 times the number of cases you know about. And one study suggests 86% of those who have coronavirus are um, are detected. Another look at the success of uh, Korea, the South, in South Korea, the baseball games are scheduled for the end of the month. Whether or not they're going to be played it remains to be seen. And Kevin Durant and three of his Brooklyn Nets teammates have the coronavirus. We've learned person by person what we know about those who have died in the U.S. can be found online. But again, there are some variables that seem to be consistent. Well, Chinese government's corruption has led to the coronavirus pandemic, so says uh, Jim Gergi. Uh, writing that even today, prominent Chinese citizens who criticize the government's response suddenly disappear. The Chinese government is much more effective at stopping the spread of information about the coronavirus than stopping the spread of the virus itself. Pardon me, the Wuhan virus uh, from National Review. And Professor Samuel Abrams explains why he believes this pandemic could be the thing that finally moves us away from our current state of never-ending anger and chaos. Well, we'll see about that. Amy Walter says, I'm often asked what will break our current political polarization? My answer has been it will take a huge crisis. But here we are in the middle of a crisis and the polling finds us as divided as ever. Well, with Americans forced to self-isolate in their homes with a coronavirus pandemic, turnout has been noticeably low in parts of Illinois, one of three states holding presidential primaries uh, yesterday. The comparison turnout in Chicago by early afternoon was less than half the level from the 2016 Democratic presidential primary, according to the city's Board of Elections. But election officials there, as well as in Arizona and Florida and the other two states holding primaries or that held them, were confident that the surge in early voting and mail-in ballots could make up for the drop in voting on primary day. In recent days, election officials in all three states relocated some polling stations that were originally set to be located in senior centers or nursing homes. Senior citizens are most at risk from the coronavirus, which is officially known as COVID-19. Concerns about the outbreak likely caused some poll workers in Florida and Illinois to stay home on Tuesday. The relocating of poll sites in Florida led to some disruptions and low turnout was reported in some counties while voting was going smoothly in other locations. There were no major issues reported by early afternoon in Arizona, where most voters had cast their ballots before primary day.
Well, Joe Biden swept another round of delegate-rich contests on Tuesday, winning in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona, cementing further the former vice president as the dominant frontrunner in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination over Bernie Sanders, as the coronavirus threat scrambles the primary calendar for the foreseeable future. Florida and Illinois um, awarded a hefty 219 and 155 pledge delegates, respectively, while Arizona is worth 67. Together, the contests are likely to, to uh, only add to the pressure on Bernie Sanders to reconsider his presence in the race. We did read earlier in the day that he was reassessing uh, his race, but did not make any moves to step aside. Last week, Sanders vowed to press on after a string of defeats, signaling he wants to continue to pressure Biden to embrace more progressive policies, saying our campaign has had a very good night. Uh, Biden uh, told reporters in Wilmington, Delaware, before the Arizona race was called, we've moved closer to securing the Democratic Party's nomination for president, and we're doing it by building a broad coalition that we will need to win in November with strong support from the African-American community, community, the Latino community, high school aged people, educated people, labor, teachers, suburbans. And he went on once again. He extended an olive branch to Sanders in a nudge to convince him to step aside, though, as recently as their debate on Sunday, Sanders showed little inclination to do just that. But as I mentioned, the Democratic presidential campaign said on Wednesday, the Vermont senator will spend the next several weeks assessing the future of his campaign. And that's we. Weeks, mind you, after a string of losses to the former vice president, the next primary contest is at least three weeks away. Senator Sanders is going to be having conversations with supporters to assess his campaign, according to his campaign manager in a statement uh, this morning. In the immediate term, however, he's focused on the government response to the coronavirus outbreak and ensuring that we take care of working people and the most vulnerable. In the subsequent email to supporters, the campaign manager said no uh, sugarcoating it last night did not go the way we wanted. The campaign manager said that after the expected Senate vote on coronavirus relief later Wednesday, the senator and his wife are going to get on a plane back to Ver- uh, Vermont. Uh, once there, they'll begin holding conversations with supporters to get input and assess the path forward for the campaign. Well, in yet another indicator of the ideological shift in the Democratic Party, a progressive candidate succeeded in her second attempt Tuesday to oust an eight-term pro-life Democratic House incumbent in the Chicago area. In a primary that ended in defeat for one of just two House Democrats endorsed by Democrats for Life of America in the last election, businesswoman Marie Newman beat Representative Dan Lipinski of Illinois, 3rd Congressional District, by 47.1 points to 44.8, with 99% of the precincts reporting. We were very proud to endorse Dan, the um, Democrats for Life executive director, Kirsten uh, Day said in response to queries as the results were coming in, there's been a, a systematic effort by the abortion lobby to bully pro-life Democrats into voting against their conscience, she said. Shamefully, many Democrats cave. I am extremely proud of Dan for sticking to his principles, even in the face of threats and millions of dollars of outside spending by the abortion lobby. Well, after l- losing to Lipinski in the primary challenge in 2018, Newman's campaign this year enjoyed the support of high-profile left-wing lawmakers and a host of liberal and pro-abortion groups. She was endorsed by the Democratic presidential candidate, Senator Bernie Sanders, as as well as former presidential hopefuls, Senators uh, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, and Washington Governor Jay Inslee. Also endorsing Newman were squad members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Anya Pres- uh, Presley and co-chairs of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So it was quite a stack up against this uh, one of the few lone House pro-life 
um, members. On the same night that President Donald Trump officially secured the Republican presidential nomination with his overwhelming wins in Florida and Illinois primaries, Joe Biden unofficially locked in his nomination for the Democrats as he swept the three states holding their Democratic primaries, Arizona, Florida and Illinois. As the New York Times observed, Biden's victory over Senator Bernie Sanders effectively snuffed out his rival's hopes of a comeback. The only question remaining is when Sanders will concede defeat. Thomas Gallatin uh, wonders Biden's success and Sanders' freefall can be assigned to a couple of reasons. The primary uh, the primary one is that a majority of Americans, and even Democrats uh, for that matter, aren't on board with Bolshevik Bernie's revolution. Secondly, Biden has effectively outmaneuvered Sanders by essentially playing to the party's hard left base. Biden has done this by asserting that his real disagreement with Sanders is mostly over tactics, but we share a common vision. That's in quotes. As the Wall Street Journal reports, Mr. Biden already is trying trying to unify the party behind him, endorsing policy proposals related to bankruptcy law and college tuition in a bid to woo liberals and young liberals in particular. Mr. Sanders acknowledged last week that he's losing the debate over electability among Democrats. So how long will Sanders hang on? He has thus far remained defiant against calls for his uh, concession. And if 2016 is any guide, he'll continue to stick it out. In fact, his campaign is accusing Biden of lying about the coronavirus. Sanders' national press secretary claimed Biden's campaign has lied repeatedly about the safety of going to the polls. Bernie Sanders is putting the health and safety of the country first. I know who I'm voting for. Then again, his campaign released a statement that the senator will assess his campaign in the coming days. We're waiting with bated breath to see where that ends up. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with John Ellis. He is the author of The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done. He'll join us uh, to talk about that. And then in the second hour of the program today, we'll talk with Andy Mangione, Vice President of the Association of Mature Americans Act action on new measures to speed the COVID-19 care that will have an impact far beyond this issue and a means to protect the medical supply uh, supply chain without China being a major part of that. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in the preface of his book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done, writes, in the years immediately following the Second World War, America's colleges and universities enjoyed the almost unlimited confidence of the American people. Enrollment soared and many new campuses were built across the country. That confidence has been draining away as stories of education corrupted by radical politics have grown increasingly common and politically correct foolishness has brought ridicule upon one campus after another. In the first few years, rather in the last few years, however, the erosion of public trust in higher education has accelerated. The public has seen more and more instances of speakers who challenged any aspect of radical leftist orth- uh, orthodoxy being shouted down and silenced on campuses. The rot that has been growing for many decades appears to have reached a point of no repair. Again, I'm referring to the book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done, written by my next guest, John Ellis. Uh, Mr. Ellis is a distinguished professor emeritus of German literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He founded the Association of Literary Scholars and Critics in 1993 and served as president of the California Association of Scholars in 2007 to 2013 and chairman of its boards since then. He joins us today to talk about his book, what we're witnessing and what, if anything, can be done. Thank you so much for joining us. 
It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me on. One of the points that you make is that uh, some 30 years, uh, it began some 30 years ago, that books were written warning of the destruction, uh, the destructive direction that higher education was taking, um, but that the time for that warning has come to an end because what was being warned about has now come to its full fruition. It has indeed. I mean, the... uh the destruction of our education is very, very far advanced now. Um, all kinds of studies have been done showing that uh, uh, higher education is simply not what it was. It's not. It's no longer the, the valuable kind of thing that it always has been in the nation's past. And describe where education has come so we understand the nature of the problem. I mentioned one um, one expression of it, and that is the uh, rejection of the free exercise of one's uh, expression and freedom of speech. But what has been the, the the predominant expression of this decline? Well, uh, it's a difficult nowhere to start. I mean, you can look at the results, right? Uh, and and those results are dreadful. I mean, the studies have been done showing that. Uh, at least half of students go through college with no increase in their ability to think, to reason, to write. Uh, employers, uh, organizations look at uh, how well prepared students are for the workplace, and they find that uh, uh, they're very poorly prepared for the workplace. They don't have the skills that employers want. Um uh, the other other studies have, have looked at how how well they understand American history or the American Constitution or American government. Uh, those studies find that they're very very poorly prepared in those areas. So one after another. But the source of it all, of course, is that uh, what's going on on campus is much more about radical politics than about education, and that's that's the problem. That there has been a change. In the composition of the faculty over the last 50 years, uh, people who, 50 years ago, professors were concerned about educating students, teaching them to think for themselves. Increasingly over that 50 years, professors have started to think in terms of getting their political opinions shared by their students and they, they place a higher priority on that than they do on teaching those kids to think for themselves. And the results show. Uh, so when, when graduates uh, uh, get through their four years, they clearly are not the same kind of graduates we used to have. They can't think for themselves in the way they used to. What they, what they are is they're more likely to, uh, to espouse radical, radical politics uh, but they're not the kind of people who can look at a problem and see all sides of it and analyze it and think productively about it. All they know is how to spout a political opinion. Mm, and that's according um, to what we've witnessed over the last 50 years. That's by design. That was intended. It's not a, a matter of students failing to grasp the rigorous education that they've been challenged to uh, engage in. It's by design. It is. It, I'm afraid it really is by design. I mean, over that time, uh, professors have changed in their in their character. I mean, uh, you know, 50 years ago, a professor, what he wanted was to bring out in a student an ability to think for himself or herself, uh, an ability to look at any any problem, analyze it, break it down into parts 
see the advantages and disadvantages of particular solutions, uh, be able to sort of judge which is the best way to treat it and so on. Uh, that whole spirit in professors has largely gone. Now what we're seeing is professors who want converts to their political cause. And, uh, and this is really shocking because it costs a great deal of money uh, to send kids to college. And it takes uh, four years, and that's a that's a very big uh, foregoing of income for those four years. And those poor kids are not getting the kind of education they used to get. Now, the, you say that the purpose of your book is threefold. One is to explain exactly what happened and what made this possible. And it begs the question, with 30 years of warnings, or perhaps even more than 30 years of, of warnings of, of the direction that higher education was taking, were those warnings just not taken seriously? Um, were uh, parents, did they underestimate the capacity of uh, men and women who are teaching their sons and daughters to have the level of influence that, that they have? How did we arrive at this uh, destination when there were clear and articulate warnings? Yeah, well, those warnings really, as you said, began about 30 years ago. A series of books came out warning that academia was going in the wrong direction. It was It was prioritizing radical politics over the ability to think. Uh, and um, what happened was essentially the warnings were completely ignored. The reason they were ignored is because the, most of the professors on campus already didn't care. I mean, they, as far as they were concerned, they weren't being warned about something they wanted to avoid. Uh, they wanted to achieve what was being warned of. I mean, they wanted to achieve a situation where they would have dominance over the campuses. They would get control. So uh, people like me 30 years ago warning of what was happening, but we, were, we wrote our books addressed to our fellow professors. We, we were saying to them basically, don't do this because the result will be educationally a disaster. What we didn't really understand was that those people we were talking to, other professors, didn't care. I mean, that's what they wanted. And, and uh, even now, I mean, for example, um, you take 50 years ago, um, there were approximately three professors on the left for two on the right, right? So there was a mild tilt. Now, by the time you get to uh, uh, turn of the century, about 2000, that's going to five to one. Now, by five, six years later, that's going to eight to one. Now, at this point, you'd think that people would start to realize that a one-party campus, a one-party, a place where, which is supposed to be devoted to the analysis of ideas, but one half of the spectrum of political ideas has been dumped, has been cleared out. But you think people start to realize that's not very healthy. You know, you want a healthy debate between mm-hmm. left and right on campus. But no, what was remarkable was that by that time, there were a lot of people, including me, saying, this is ridiculous. You cannot have a a department teaching political science on a campus when the only people doing the teaching are leftists. You have to have both sides. Otherwise, the kids who graduate with a bachelor's degree in political science aren't properly educated. Now, what is remarkable is that no amount of warning of this made the slightest difference. So that eight to one by about 2005 has now become about 14 to one. And still, you can say that 14 to 1 is a ridiculous proportion. It's ridiculous to have 
political and social ideas uh, that, are, that are right of center completely banned from the campus. And it's ridiculous to think that can be an educational institution. Uh, no one, even now, no one is taking the warning seriously. The ratio of left to right still grows every year because older professors retire and are replaced by younger ones. So you can bet if it's about 14 to 1 now, uh, give it another five years, it'll be about 20, 25 to mm. 1. Mm. And, and the one thing you can bet on is that no one on campus gives a damn. They will not They will not think this a bad idea. In fact, they think it's a good idea. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with John Ellis, author of The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It's Done, and What Can Be Done. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 52 minutes after... The hour of four o'clock. We're talking about the book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, um, how it happened, the damage it does, and what can be done. John Ellis is my guest. And in the book, having watched uh, the deterioration of academia for the past 50 years, he locates the core of the problem and a change in the composition of the faculty during that time, from mildly left-leaning to almost exclusively leftist. And he explains how historical luck led to the success of a plan first devised by a small group of activists to use college campuses to promote radical politics, and why laws and regulations that are designed to prevent the politicizing of higher education proved insufficient. Uh, Just before the break, we were talking about uh, the first Um, goal in the book, and that is to explain exactly what happened and what made it possible. Uh, Next, you um, describe the the frightening extent of the damage that's been done to all levels of education, including K through 12, as well as um, the damage that's now being done to our society as a result. Uh, Do we tend to underestimate the extent to which what happens in higher education uh, has an impact on the rest of culture outside of these uh, academic institutions? Yes, I think we do. I mean, for example, the, everyone knows that the uh, political climate in the country is more poisonous, more bitter and divisive now than it's ever been. But that begins on the campuses. That begins because uh, the radical left expels everybody but themselves from the campus. And then there is only on the campus one set of political ideas. Well, the problem is students keep coming in, and they don't necessarily, at the beginning, share those ideas. And what the what the uh, leftists who teach on campuses then do is to persuade kids, if they can, that those ideas that are missing are missing because they're poisonous and bad ideas. So what you get is a, an extreme divisiveness. In other words, there, there are good ideas. Those are on campus. Those are by the radical left. There are bad ideas. They've been kicked out of the campus. And the, and the reason, the excuse for kicking them out is not just their bad ideas, but they're, they're dangerous ideas. They're vicious ideas. They're spiteful ideas. They're cruel and dangerous ideas. Now, that, so what gets exported from the campus is political hatred of the other side. And that starts to infect our culture. And so there's, there's less ability of conservatives and liberals to collaborate with, with each other for the common good. You, you get a much more bitter uh, political atmosphere in the country as a result of what's going on on the campus. And we've seen a series Nobody, of near riots on campuses that illustrate your point. Yeah, Absolutely. And then, I mean, it affects the professions. I mean, the 
The uh, the fact that uh, journalism uh, has gone rather sour and is very, very one-sided, again, that's the fault of the campus. Journalism schools are bitterly uh, divisive things now where only one uh, only one political opinion is taught. Uh, uh, this goes for any number of professions. It, it goes for the, uh, the elementary schools, high schools. Again, those, those places are now uh, very strongly influenced by the, the political climate on campus. Teachers and uh, elementary and high school teachers are trained on college campuses. They, they get that kind of political hatred uh, from the campus and take it into the high schools. So uh, it, it, the damage done throughout our country is just enormous. Well, one of the important aspects of your book is the fact that you um, consider what can be done about this educational and societal catastrophe. You don't just leave us in despair, but you offer constructive ways that we can uh, look at turning this around. What are some of the things that your readers are encouraged to consider that might make a difference? Well, I think they have to stand back. And the first thing they have to do is cast off the spell that is that they're under um, with names like Harvard, Yale, University of California. I mean, they've got to understand those things are not what they were. You know, you can't any longer go on having the same respect for for what's produced by those institutions. And you've got to instead look realistically at what actually is happening. Forget about the past glory of, I mean, our, our educational system was a wonder uh, after World War II. It was the best, by far the best in the world. But what parents and students and members of the public have to do now is throw off the spell created by that glorious past and face up to the reality of what's going on. And the reality is they're paying a huge amount of money and devoting years of their lives to not to higher education, but to political indoctrination. Uh, they've got to face this realistically, and they've got to say to themselves, I pay a lot of money, I put a lot of effort, I put a lot of time into this, what am I really getting for it? Uh, and uh, at that point, they've got to understand that the money they pay in taxes to the, to the legislatures uh, the states, uh, the money they pay in tuition, that, that's voluntary. They don't need to pay that. I mean, that what they ought to be gathering together and saying as a group is we are not getting the higher education that we're paying for. And and uh, we're going to withdraw that funding. We're just going to, you know, uh, as parents, not any longer pay those high tuition costs when what is happening is not higher education anymore. How optimistic are you that, um, you know, the effort to challenge professors on uh, college and university campuses failed? They didn't seem to care or the uh, direction that they were going was what they preferred. How optimistic are you that the general public, that parents who are paying these tuition fees and others um, are going to stand up and say enough? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a very, very big question. That is the question. Are, are parents, taxpayers, philanthropic donors, are they going to stand back and look realistically and think, is that money being used for the right purpose? Is it being used for higher education or is it being used for, for the promotion of radical politics? Now, 
when when a parent sees the word Harvard or Yale, you know that casts a spell. Uh, to what extent can people throw that off and look realistically at what's happening to their kids on college campuses? Uh, I hope that we're going to reach a point where uh, the members of the American public are just going to say, this is absurd. We're withdrawing the money that we pay for all this stuff. We won't go on supporting it. Uh, until Until the salaries of these radicals are threatened, they will go on doing exactly what they do. Mm. So the ball is in the court of the people who ultimately pay those salaries, and that is parents, taxpayers. Well, once again, the title of the book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done. John Ellis, thank you so much for your, uh, your work and for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed your program very much, and uh, I'm very pleased to be on with you. Thank you so much. By the way, the book is published by Encounter and is currently available. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Andy Mangione will be my guest in the second hour. We'll talk about some moves to make your um, health care more accessible, as well as breaking the dependence on China for the medical supply chain. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I tell you, it's been tough to keep up with all the new information that emerges throughout the course of the day, and we're trying to keep up so that we can keep you informed. I wonder, um, you know, there are a lot of things we can do to keep our spirits up. I was just in the lunchroom moments ago and heard, because we have a radio on in the lunchroom, and it's it broadcasts one of the stations here. We have several. And the song, How Great Is Our God, was on. I found myself singing along, just reminding myself that in the midst of all of this confusion and chaos, God is still on the throne. We can trust him and how great our God is. So I hope you're listening to things that are inspiring and not just focusing on the details as my job requires me to do to to some degree. I still find myself taking moments away to put it all into perspective, and I hope you'll do the same. Well, I wanted to give you the updates on what we do know about the coronavirus. We uh, learned earlier today that the cases have now topped 200,000 worldwide with a death toll of 8,000. The total number confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus worldwide has now surpassed that number, according to Johns Hopkins University, while the death toll has reached, uh, rather topped 8,000. The Johns Hopkins Center for Systems Science and Engineering's online tally uh, showed 201,436 cumulative cases um, as of late Tuesday and 82,032 listed as recovered. It also recorded 8,006 deaths. But I think it's important to uh, note the number of recovered. If you contract the virus, it's not a death sentence for most people. Uh, Again, uh, they say that um, 82,032 have been listed as recovered, while only 8,006 deaths have occurred. Now, I say only, just to put it into perspective, every single one of those deaths is significant, important, and a reason for grief. But again, just putting it into the broader perspective. Uh, The countries with the most confirmed cases were China, Italy, Iran, Spain, and Germany. At least 81,102 people in China 31,506 people in Italy, 16,000 people in Iran, and 13,000 in Spain. 9,800 people in Germany have been infected. 
The countries with the most confirmed deaths were China, Italy, Iran, Spain, and France. Well, last week, the World Health Organization declared Europe the uh, new epicenter of the global pandemic of the coronavirus, which originated in the city of Wuhan, China, in the Hubei province. The European Union announced on Tuesday it was sealing its borders for its uh, 26 member states, as well as Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, and Switzerland, banning travel uh, from the bloc for 30 days, the BBC reported. And that came the same day that France announced a nationwide lockdown following suit from countries like Italy, Spain, as part of an effort to curb the spread of the infection. Italy entered its second week of the nationwide lockdown. They implemented new measures on Tuesday that require Italians to fill out a police-issued self-declaration form before going outside. Residents have to state who they are, where they intend to go, and for what reason. The form also requires residents there to disclose that they have not tested positive for COVID-19 and are not currently taking part in a 14-day quarantine. The lockdown there had already drastically altered most aspects of daily life, shutting down the bars and restaurants, businesses besides grocery stores and pharmacies. Sporting events, concerts, even masses were canceled. Doctors and nurses were required to cancel all extended leave. And though the number of cases remains high there, on Tuesday, uh, Italy recorded its slowest daily increase rate in the numbers uh, of those infected since the first cases were reported in that country on the 21st of February. An expert from the government's scientific committee said the uh, slow and contagion rate over the past few days suggests that the lockdown measures are working. Meanwhile, um, Dr. Fauci says that it's going to be weeks before we see the effects of following the coronavirus guidelines here. He is, of course, the infectious diseases doctor that's been overseeing much of what's happening here. Uh, he's on the coronavirus task force, and he was uh, speaking uh, to a news outlet to update the American people on the coronavirus outbreak. And he said it will take weeks before we see the results from the guidelines recommended by the administration. We almost certainly are having effect right now, even as we speak. The degree of the effect and how it's going to impact on that curve will likely take several weeks. That doesn't mean we need to be in the situation we are now. But as we said, we put these mitigation strategies in for a 15-day period. We'll likely extend beyond that, but we really do reevaluate it on a day-by-day basis. Basis. Well, again, he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He advised young and healthy people to follow the guidelines in order to quell the spreading of the virus and warned that they could also become sick, saying, and I quote, the problem with saying everybody else can go and do whatever they want to do. As they get infected, it becomes inevitable that they will be at risk. They will risk the individuals who are vulnerable because, first of all, it's almost impossible to have complete lack of any contact with an individual. But also, we've got to be careful just because the vast majority of individuals who are young and healthy don't get seriously ill. Some do. And in fact, the doctor warned not to get too complacent, saying the degrees of contagion varies depending on the amount of exposure. This is a community Effort. Well, President Trump today announced that he is invoking the Defense Production Act as part of the administration's efforts to tackle the coronavirus pandemic and also described himself as being on a wartime footing. It can do a lot of good if we need it, he said at the White House press conference. Uh, we'll have it all uh, completed, signed um, in just a little while. Well, the act ensures the private sector can ramp up manufacturing and distribution of emergency medical supplies and equipment. And the move gives the White House the authority to increase uh, production of masks, ventilators and respirators, as well as expand hospital capacity to combat the coronavirus. Asked if he saw the nation as being on a wartime footing, he said he did and described himself 
as, in a sense, a wartime president. He made the remarks at a press conference along with members of the Coronavirus Pandemic Task Force. The U.S. has largely shuttered many aspects of daily life, as you well know, in order to stem the rapid onset of the virus, echoing efforts across the globe. As of Wednesday morning, there are 6,519 cases, 114 deaths in the United States. Today, the president also announced that the housing department is suspending all foreclosures and evictions until the end of April. Earlier in the day, he had announced that the U.S. and Canada had agreed to temporarily close their shared border uh, to non-essential traffic. And Vice President Mike Pence, who's leading the task force, announced that Health and Human Services are suspending a regulation that prevents medical professionals from practicing medicine across state lines. He also called on the nation to postpone all elective medical procedures. President Trump has held a number of press conferences as his as the crisis has elevated and escalated is probably a better word in an effort to keep the public informed and to preview measures the administration is uh, taking. He had previewed Wednesday's conference by saying that he would discuss very important news from the FDA concerning the Chinese virus. On Saturday, he announced that he was extending the European travel ban to include the UK and Ireland. And on Tuesday, he spoke at a press conference where Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said that the administration wants to send checks to Americans in the next two weeks in an effort to help people cope with the economic fallout due to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, again, the president invoked the Defense Production Act. So what is it and what does it allow the president to do? Well, in, in making that announcement, um, he's uh, expressing an effort to help the private sector ramp up manufacturing and distribution of emergency medical supplies and equipment during this pandemic. Companies are required to accept and prioritize contracts from the government and to prioritize materials, services and facilities to promote the national defense or to maximize domestic energy supplies. And while this provision has historically been used to ramp up military production in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the act will be used uh, for medical supplies. The second provision of the Defense Production Act, um, uh, it has to do with financial measure, measures, rather, such as loans, loan guarantees, purchases and purchase commitments to speed up the production of materials needed to support national defense and homeland security procurement requirements. The act also addresses voluntary agreements or what the government says is an association of private interests approved by the government to plan and coordinate actions in support of the national defense. The provision permits business competitors to work together to plan and coordinate measures to increase the supply of materials. Now, along with the three main provisions, that act also provides the government with the authority to obtain information from businesses, authorizes the establishment of the National Defense Executive Reserve and a committee on foreign investment in the United States, which works on the efforts, uh, the effects rather of national security on certain mergers, acquisitions, takeovers and so on. When the act is invoked, it requires the administration to file an annual report to Congress on the impact these offsets have had on the defense preparedness, industrial competitiveness, employment and trade from the act. So that is what the uh, president has invoked. And that's at least a, a brief explanation as to what that means. Well, the White House is moving forward, we understand, with a proposed $1 trillion coronavirus um, package that would infuse Americans' uh, bank accounts with two rounds of direct cash payments. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll tell you more about that. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Andy Mangione. He's vice president of the 2.1 million member AMAC, Action, 
uh, the Association of Mature Americans on new measures to speed up the COVID-19 care for seniors and to protect the medical supply uh, for the nation. We'll talk with him about that in our next segment. Well, the White House is moving forward with a proposed $1 trillion coronavirus package that would infuse Americans' bank accounts with two rounds of direct cash payments. I don't know how they differentiate between those working and those out of work, but the Trump administration is seeking a $250 billion in payments to Americans starting the 6th of April, followed by another $250 billion cash payment round beginning a May the 18th, according to the working draft of the plan, the two payments to taxpayers would be identical and the amounts would vary by family income and size, according to the Treasury Department document on the stage three coronavirus proposal. The Washington Post first reported the document. Well, the draft of the plan outlines a major economic infusion that goes well beyond the stimulus and bailout plans during the last financial crisis and designed to prop up an economy that's ground to a halt as stores and restaurants. Restaurants and schools are shuttered nationwide and families are isolating at home. The administration's stimulus package is bigger than the 2008 bank bailout and the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was passed and signed under uh, former President Barack Obama and totaled $787 billion to help stabilize the economy about 14 months after the last recession began. Congress and the president already approved an $8.3 billion package to prop up the health care system to respond to the pandemic. The Senate Wednesday um, sent another bill to the president's desk to give 14 paid sick days to workers, boost unemployment insurance, make coronavirus testing free and increase food assistance during the crisis. Well, the president today announced that the Department of Housing and Urban Development will suspend all home foreclosures and evictions to the end of April with the coronavirus outbreak. And during a press conference from the White House briefing room today, the president said that he was working with HUD Secretary Ben Carson on the matter. HUD will suspend all foreclosures and evictions until the end of April. The announcement comes as the coronavirus or COVID-19 outbreak rocks the market and the economy. The president has said that a recession is possible, and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer echoed the same concerns from the Senate floor on Wednesday. And the president announced that the U.S. and Canada are temporarily closing uh, their shared border to non-essential traffic as part of the effort to tackle the corona virus pandemic. We will be, by mutual consent, temporarily closing our northern border with Canada to non-essential traffic. Trade will not be affected. Details to follow. As of Wednesday morning, there are 6,519 cases and 114 deaths in the United States. Canada, meanwhile, has recorded 598 cases of coronavirus and has so far had eight fatalities nationwide. Well, a federal government plan to combat the virus uh, warned policymakers last week that a pandemic pandemic will last 18 months or longer and could include multiple waves resulting in widespread shortages that would strain consumers and the nation's health care system. Well, the 100-page plan, dated Friday, the same day President Trump declared a national emergency, laid out a grim prognosis for the spread of the virus and outlined a response that would activate agencies across the government and potentially employ special presidential powers to mobilize the private sector. Among the additional key federal decisions listed among the options for the president, 
Um, he has invoked the Defense Production Act of 1950, a Korean War era law that authorizes him to take extraordinary action. The plan uh, continued state and local governments, as well as critical infrastructure and communications channels will be stressed and potentially less reliable. These stresses may also increase the challenges of getting updated messages and coordinating guidance to these jurisdictions uh, directly. Shortages of products may occur, impacting health care, emergency services and other elements of critical infrastructure, the plan warned. This includes potentially critical shortages of diagnostics, medical supplies, uh, and staffing in some locations. PP&E refers to personal protective equipment for medical uh, uh, professionals. The plan, which was classified but marked for official use only, not for public distribution or release, was shared with the New York Times as the president escalated his effort to curb the spread of the virus. After weeks of playing down the seriousness of the pandemic, saying it would miraculously disappear, the president began shifting to a more sober tone during a news conference on Friday announcing the national emergency. And here at home, two more people have died of COVID-19 in Oregon. State health leaders announced on Wednesday the deaths brings Oregon's statewide total to three. The Oregon Health Authority also announced 10 new cases of the coronavirus in the state, which brings Oregon's total to 75. The two people who died were a 60-year-old woman in Lane County who died on March the 14th but tested positive for the virus on Tuesday, and a 71-year-old man from Washington County who died on Tuesday. Both patients had underlying medical conditions, according to the Oregon Health Authority. We are saddened at the news of these additional lives lost in Oregon due to COVID-19. The uh, director of Oregon Health Authority, Patrick Allen, said these deaths only strengthen our resolve to slow the spread of this disease in our communities. We are in this together. Oregon's 10 new cases are in the following counties, one in Benton County, two in Lane, four in Marion County, two in Washington County, and one in Yamhill. Well, health officials continue to urge all Oregonians to take steps to protect um, those who are most vulnerable to complications from COVID-19. Those considered high risk include adults over 60, anyone with a serious health condition, including lung or heart problems, kidney disease or diabetes, or anyone who has suppressed immune system. Uh, People vulnerable to complications should follow federal centers for disease control and prevention recommendations to stay home as much as possible and avoid gatherings. Every resident should take these basic steps to protect those most at risk. Cover your mouth and nose when you cough. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Avoid touching your eyes and your nose and your mouth with unwashed hands. And if you do, then wash your hands. Stay home if you feel ill. Well, one of the women in Oregon who died last weekend at Springfield Hospital was tested positive for COVID-19, according to the Lane County officials, but only after her death. She was in her 60s, died at Riverbend Hospital on the 14th, and uh, the local media reports the woman was brought to the hospital when she experienced cardiac arrest. She was tested for coronavirus after her death, and the test came back positive Tuesday night. The medical examiner's office will determine her official cause of death. So far, the Oregon Health Authority has reported 65 known cases of the virus across the state. That includes one other death, a 70-year-old man in Multnomah County with underlying health conditions as well. Well, it's uh, something of a challenge to keep up with all of the new rules and edicts being handed down either from Washington, Olympia or Salem. But as of Wednesday morning, Uh, We know that the governor has announced the state has uh, signed a contract with a private provider to bring 20,000 more COVID-19 tests to the state of Oregon. Kaiser Permanente Northwest is uh, temporarily closing clinics and medical offices in Portland. 
uh, on Thursday to prepare for an expected surge of patients infected with COVID-19 coronavirus. And that, uh, you know, that will be impacted by what we are choosing to do now. Oregon's Special Joint Committee on Coronavirus uh, Response will hold its first public meeting at 10 a.m. and did so this morning. Landlords concerned with the Multnomah County eviction moratorium, which has now been echoed in Washington, say a little bit of uh, a gut punch initially. That's a quote from Ken Shriver with Rental Housing Alliance, Oregon. He said plenty of landlords rely on rent to pay their own bills. We have to make sure we don't shift the burden of the load from one side to the other. And restaurant layoffs have left thousands of Oregonians wondering if they qualify for state unemployment. Uh, worldwide cases has exceeded 200,000, uh, again, worldwide. Well, we know that the filing deadline for your 2019 taxes has now been extended, but there are some do's and don'ts to be aware of when making your file, uh, filing. Secretary of Treasury Steve Mnuchin discussed his uh, recommendation to President uh, Trump uh, that the April 15th tax, uh, tax deadline be delayed to help small and medium-sized business amid the virus uh, fears. The coronavirus is affecting financial situations of Americans across um, the country. Well, the good news is that there are some options for relief. On Tuesday, the White House announced that it would allow certain groups, again, underline certain groups, to defer tax payments by 90 days. That includes people and small businesses um, owing up to a million dollars, as well as businesses, corporations and sole proprietorships owing up to 10 million penalties and interest for the period will also be waived. It's also important to note that the adjusted deadlines could vary depending on where you live. While some states are following the federal dates, others are setting their own delayed deadline. For example, California's will have uh, will, will be June the 15th. So be sure to check depending on where you happen to live and whether or not you're eligible for relief. Here's what you still need to do. File your taxes by April 15th, the deadline. The postponement of payments will be applied automatically for eligible individuals and businesses by the tax agency. We encourage people to file taxes if they can, Secretary Mnuchin said on Tuesday. Typically during a normal tax year, the failure to file a penalty is a 5% um, penalty of the unpaid taxes for each month that the return is late. The penalty begins accruing. Uh, the day after returns are due up to a maximum of 25% of your unpaid taxes. So the bottom line is um, pay your taxes under circumstances where that's possible and make sure that if you are eligible for an exception, that you are certain that you are eligible for an exception. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with uh, Andy Mangione. He's vice president of the 2.1 million member AMAC. Uh, action. It's the Association of Mature Americans on new measures to speed up COVID-19 care and an effort to protect the medical supply in the United States that is largely at this point dependent on China. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My understanding is a new line of defense is soon going to become operational that will supercharge patients and caregivers' ability to access medical histories quickly, speeding up care and reducing redundancies. My next guest writes that think of it as an advanced level of care coordination. Andy Mangione is vice president of the 2.1 million member AMAC action. And while perhaps uh, too late for the current crisis, he says Americans will soon be able to leverage data to help combat health challenges and make better informed financial decisions regarding their care. Well, he discusses um, 
Uh, a new executive, he's also going to join us, I should say, to discuss an executive order expected from the president aimed at reducing America's dangerous dependence on China for medical supplies and pharmaceuticals. Well, the Association of Mature Americans is a conservative alternative to the AARP, and the AMAC Action is the organization's grassroots advocacy arm. He joins us today uh, as its vice president, and uh, so grateful to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Georgine. First of all, I just want to say how much I appreciate your organization, and my my intent is to join it as as soon as possible. I'm not sure I may quite make the age requirement, but uh, I appreciate the alternative that you provide. Well, thank you, Georgina. Keep this in mind. Anyone can join AMAC. We're the fastest-growing conservative organization uh, in the country. And uh, as you mentioned, 2.1 million members in all 50 states, and we've been on a tear recently, adding about 5,000 new members a month, I'm sorry, per week, and wow. we, would, we would love to love to count you among them. <laughs> well, thank you. Just so, so we don't miss it, for listeners who might be interested in learning more about this alternative, again, the Association of Mature Americans, what's the best way for them to, um, to look into that? Well, they could call toll-free 888 262 That's 888-262-2006 and speak to one of our member services representatives. Or they could go to AMAC, that's A-M-A-C dot U-S, A-M-A-C dot U-S, and uh, sign up online. It only costs $16 and it covers a household and you'd be a newly minted member of the Association of Mature American Citizens. Okay. Well, I appreciate that very much. Well, um, you have written a piece uh, for Town Hall in which you Um, write about uh, an effort that is going to supercharge patients' power. Let's start at the beginning and talk about this new data system and why it's important. It's extremely important. Now, keep in mind that President Trump has been keeping health care promise after health care promise after health care promise. Now, not discounting the the crisis that we're dealing with right now with the coronavirus, and he's got all hands on deck for that. But since he was elected, he pledged to put patients first. And he followed up on this. So uh, what happened on March 9th is that the Department of Health and Human Services announced the finalization of two rules that would give unprecedented, safe, secure access to health data for all Americans. And let me let me explain what that means. First of all, the rules, uh, we haven't had this kind of access to data individuals ever. These are the most significant data sharing policies ever realized by the federal government. Uh, Other administrations have tried this level of uh, interoperability and laws were enacted to achieve it, but it's the Trump administration that's actually delivered it. So right now, we're actually forthcoming. uh, Both private and public organizations must share health information between patients and other parties. And those other parties could be any practitioner, any provider, hospitals, clinics, labs, etc., in a manner that ensures safety, privacy, and security. And I want to underscore that, Georgine. This is going to be a safe transmission of information. So what are Americans going to do with this? When they have this information, Americans will be able to manage their health care in the same way that they handle their travel and utilize other information. They'll be able to use their smartphones to shop for care, and it's going to be driven by applications that will provide price and product transparency. So what you're going to see are patients coming into the light with regard to their health care. President Trump is breaking down data silos that drove up costs. How many times have you heard, you you may have even had a family member that had uh, a test over and over again because the care wasn't coordinated. Mm -hmm. These are redundant. Yeah, these are the redundancies that you mentioned earlier, Georgine, that drive up costs. So we, we haven't seen 
you're going to see a proliferation of new applications that will drive new healthcare models, business models of care that will be created as a result of this kind of access to data. It's really quite remarkable what patients are going to be able to do. If you're a Medicare patient, and you know we're, we're an organization representing Americans that are 50 plus, every annual election period, Medicare beneficiaries in the Medicare Advantage space choose a new plan uh, during the AEP. Uh, as a result of these rules, Medicare Advantage members will be able to take their health data from plan to plan and provider to provider. And what that's going to create is a cumulative health record. This will enable physicians to provide more efficient care. And also, Medicare Advantage members and others, not just MA members, will also be able to access critical claims data that gives them more complete information to better manage their treatment. A lot of people have talked about getting to this level, but it's the Trump administration that has put this into action, and the uh, application of these rules will begin towards the end of this year. Well, that's that's really uh, quite exciting. Um, uh, and as we wade through our current circumstances, uh, we can imagine how beneficial that will be um, as time passes. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're in the middle of a crisis right now that affects older people. Yes. Let's say somebody presents with COVID-19 symptoms. They walk into, say, say they're out of town, say they're a snowbird, they're down in Florida, they live up in the north or, or they're out in Scottsdale or wherever. Uh, with you'll, you'll, The patient will experience rapid care coordination once these rules are fully implemented. You'll be able to see uh, what medications they've taken, who, who they last saw, what kind of tests they've had, and uh, it, it, you know, all from a smartphone. And in a crisis situation like this, time is of the essence. Yes. You'll be able to see histories much more quicker, and it's all going to lead to better health outcomes. Oh, that's, that's encouraging to hear. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, the fact that our medical supply chain is dependent largely on China and that this is a national security risk and there's an expectation that the president is going to issue a new executive order aimed at ensuring that our medical supplies and pharmaceuticals are made here at home uh, in response to the spread of this virus, but certainly moving forward to lessen our dependence on China that could use, uh, you know, our need for these pharmaceuticals and and other items uh, against us. Uh, This is long overdue. China is a key supplier of active drug ingredients. These are the chemical components that make drugs work and also finished medicines for the United States market. So these include active ingredients for antibiotics and pills to treat common chronic conditions like heart disease, probably a cholesterol-lowering medication. White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro uh, today said he's working with President Trump to finalize an executive order that would provide long-term incentives for American companies to produce these medications and other medical supplies here at home. This is, all, this is what we know thus far. We know that the executive order is forthcoming, but the administration, Georgine, wants to focus on three things. Number one, they want to buy American. Number two, they want to deregulate so things can get done faster. Innovations can be brought to market quicker. And importantly, they want to innovate. So they want to innovate in order to keep costs down. So I'm really looking forward to the announcement of this executive order. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to point out as a recent article, um, I th- let's see, where was this? Um, I don't I don't have the source. But anyway, the the Chinese government, um, uh, their medical supply stems from the communist regime's engagement in a strategy of illegal trade practices to fix prices, to dump products and medicines on the global market at below market prices. They subsidize their domestic companies. And that has given them a, a, an advantage if you're just looking at the, the cost of drugs, which, of course, is an, a, an important part of 
uh, how these uh, elements are, are brought together. Are you talking about taking advantage of a global crisis? Absolutely. Should not, su- should not surprise anyone. Yeah. So um, that is, uh, from your understanding, that's in the works? Absolutely. No, this is, this is, this is going to happen. It's, it's forthcoming. Um, it, it, it's like the best kept secret in Washington, but um, it, it hasn't been announced yet, but we do expect this to be coming any day. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Andy Mangione, thank you once again for what you do and for taking the time to talk with us here today. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Georgine. Thank you. Thank you. Again, Andy Mangione is vice president of the 2.1 million member AMAC Action, and that is uh, the organization, uh, the conservative alternative to AARP, the Association of Mature Americans, the AMAC. I'm going to be checking that out right away. He said 50 and older. I realized, oh, I guess I am in the demographic that fits in this organization. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We are living in peculiar times, to put it mildly. We are called upon to adjust the way we're living for our own protection, certainly, but for the protection of our neighbors as well. And that can be a challenge because our nature is naturally quite selfish. We act in our own self-interest and we are being called upon by authorities, whether that's in Salem, Olympia, Washington, city, county officials and so on to act against our nature. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, this should be consistent with how we live because that's the example that Christ set for us. But it is a challenge, and it's also a tremendous opportunity. I had a conversation with a young man who was filling in at our front desk earlier this week, and I was so encouraged by what he had to say. We were talking about the seriousness of this COVID uh, virus, and he was excited because he saw this as an opportunity for the body of Christ, for the church to express and extend the love of Christ out into our community. And there are so many exciting examples of how that's being done. I thought it was interesting that um, Martin Luther responded to a pandemic in his day, and even though that was 16th century um, uh, reformers time, I think he has something to say to us as well. So I thought I would share with you what Martin Luther uh, said in response to the pandemic of his day. Now, he was a 16th century reformer. Martin Luther wrote almost 500 years ago about responding to pandemics. And when Luther was uh, confronted by questions about how to respond to the Black Death Plague, he responded in words that well, should serve to inform our approach to the pandemic crisis our nation and the world is now facing. In a letter to Reverend Dr. John Hess, uh, found in Luther's works, volume 43, page 132, as whether one may flee from a deadly plague, Luther writes this, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus, perchance, inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and uh, so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See this as such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God, end quote. Well, today in the 21st century, the faithful should perhaps go and do likewise. 
And then there are some thoughts on how we might pray for one another during this pandemic and certainly pray for ourselves. I appreciated that there were some prayers that were published in Christianity today. Um, 20 prayers to pray during this pandemic for specific things. The list isn't comprehensive and you can find it online, but it's a good place to start. The hope is that it can provide words for us as we pray collectively as the body of Christ, the church, believing that there is a God who bends his ear to listen. And so we pray for the sick and infected. We pray God heal and help sustain bodies and spirits contain the spread of this infection for our vulnerable populations. God protect our elderly and those suffering from chronic disease provide for the poor, especially the uninsured for the young and the strong. God give them the necessary caution to keep them from unwittingly spreading this disease, inspire them to help. And for our local state and federal governments who are desperately trying to Um, come up with ways to help us help ourselves. God help our elected officials as they allocate the necessary resources for combating this pandemic, help them to provide more tests, give them wisdom and resolve for our scientific community, leading the charge to understand the disease and communicate its gravity. God give them knowledge, wisdom, and a persuasive voice for the media committed to providing up-to-date information. God help them communicate with appropriate seriousness without causing panic. And for consumers of media looking to be well-informed, God help us find the most helpful local information to equip us to be good neighbors, keep us from anxiety and panic, and enable us to implement the recommended strategies, even at a cost to ourselves. For those with mental health challenges who feel isolated, anxious, and helpless, God provide them every necessary support. For the homeless who are unable to practice the protocols of social distancing in the shelter system, protect them from disease and provide isolation shelters in every city. And for the international travelers who are stuck in foreign countries, God help them return home safely and quickly. For Christian missionaries throughout the world, especially in areas with high rates of infection, God provide them with words of hope and equip them to love and serve those around them. For workers in a variety of industries facing layoffs and financial hardship, God, keep them from panic and inspire your church to generously support them. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what's happening around us. For families with young children and home for the foreseeable future, God, help mothers and fathers to partner together creatively for the care and flourishing of their children. For single mothers and fathers, grow their networks of support. And for parents who cannot stay home from work but must find care for their children, God present them with creative solutions. For those in need of regular therapies and treatments that must now be postponed, God help them to stay patient and positive. Put a hedge of protection around them. For business leaders making difficult decisions that affect the lives of their employees, God give these women and men wisdom and help them to lead self-sacrificially. For pastors and church leaders uh, faced with the challenge of social distancing, God help them to creatively imagine how to pastor their congregation and love their cities well. For college and university students whose courses of study are changing, whose placements are canceled, whose graduation is uncertain, God show them that while life is uncertain, their trust is in you. For Christians in every neighborhood, in every community, in every city, may your Holy Spirit inspire us to pray, to give, to love, to serve, and to proclaim the gospel that the name of Jesus Christ might be glorified around the world. 
And for frontline health care workers, we thank you for your vocational call to serve us. And we also pray God keep them safe and healthy. Keep their families safe and healthy. God, help them to be knowledgeable about the diagnosis and treatment of this disease, as well as the changing protocols. God, help them to stay clear-minded in the midst of the surrounding panic. God, deliver them from anxiety for their own loved ones, aging parents, children, spouses, roommates. God, give them compassion for every patient in their care. God, please provide for them financially, especially if they fall ill and are unable to work. And God, help Christians in healthcare to exhibit extraordinary ordinary peace so that they that the many who ask for the reason for their hope would have the opportunity to give a reason for their hope give them opportunities to proclaim your gospel and protect them lord god god we trust that you are good and do good teach us to be your faithful people in this time of global crisis help us to follow in the footsteps of our faithful shepherd jesus who laid down his life for the sake of love glorify his name as you equip us with everything needed for doing your will Amen. Tomorrow on the program, uh, we have a few things developing, and you'll just have to wait till tomorrow to find out what they are. I hope you have a safe and prosperous evening. Spend some time in prayer, not just for your own needs, but for the needs of others, and look for those opportunities to be a blessing. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's program, and Clark Hilton for engineering as well. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.